So um, you know, we should we should start on the on the rather somber note that Ennio Morricone, who is a legend, uh, and we've talked about him on the show before in our film music episode, um, he has passed away from complications um, from a fall that he suffered, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah. I believe he was ninety-one, so mm-hmm. he lived, you know, a strong, good life. Um, um, but yeah, no, I believe he passed away in his home in, in Rome. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, he's definitely near the top of the list of composers that everyone has heard, even if no one knows, e- even if you don't know what his name is or who he is. Um, you've yeah. almost certainly heard his music. I mean, hands down. He's, yeah. yeah. The, the, he, yeah. He, he almost like wrote the playbook for, for uh, Westerns, spaghetti Westerns, as they were called back in the days, but... The whole, I mean, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly is probably his most famous score, among his most famous film scores. And when we were doing some research for this episode, I, I knew Ennio Marconi fairly well. I knew some of his more his more iconic music, but I didn't realize how much music the dude wrote. He wrote the scores for over 500 films. And there was one year where he wrote 20 film scores in one year. That's insanity. Yeah. That is nuts. That is just absurd. And that's on top of uh, a body of, of work of just straight-up classical music that, yeah. that would put a lot of composers to, to shame as well. Yeah, yeah. In, in addition to his film scores, he wrote some really great incidental music. Um, but back to what we were, you know, I guess, talking about, most of you would probably recognize his music. I mean, he wrote the playbook on how to write a Western film score <laughs> in the whole, the whole Western genre, right? Almost in the same way how how John Barry kind of locked in the James Bond genre sound of the big band spy music. Mm -hmm. And now you won't ever hear any spy movie nowadays, whether it be a parody like Johnny English (laughs) or it be... uh, a Mission Impossible sort of sort of film. I mean, every spy movie nowadays has a reference to the big band, John Barry, James Bond sound. Same way Ennio Marconi is for Westerns. You won't ever hear a parody or a cartoon or or even a modern Western made without without that distinctly Marconi um, score he wrote. Yeah, I mean, even in something like Django Unchained. Mm, um, yeah. Tarantino, I think I think Tarantino asked Morricone to to compose a score for it or something, and and he couldn't. He for he, some reason or another he couldn't do it. But I think he uh, was busy. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a pretty a pretty busy guy. But. But he still ended up using like some other pieces that that Morricone had previously written, and yeah. I think even the pieces that weren't by Morricone in the soundtrack are sort of an homage to him. So even as even something yeah. that is as um, much of a parody as Django Unchained, yeah, um, you know, you can't just one of those giants of music that um, you know there's no detour around him. You have to pass by him, whether you're referencing him, paying homage, quoting, right. making fun of, you know, you have to you have to pass through any of Morricone. Um, yeah. You can't, they can't go around him. Absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of Tarantino, I mean, we have to acknowledge the fact that Ennio Morricone received an honorary Oscar, I think in the early, mid-2000s, 
so he had been nominated for the Oscar for Best Score maybe like six times, I want to say, and he had never won it. And he was getting towards the end of his life, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so the Academy and the whole community of Hollywood recognized that Ennio Marconi would probably never win an Oscar, even though he was one of the most influential figures in the development of Hollywood. So they gave him an honorary Oscar. Hmm. But then it so happened, uh, he did win the Oscar for Tarantino's Hateful Eight. <laughs> oh, did he? <laughs> yeah, that's um, one of my favorite shots or sort of things is when um uh at that oscar ceremony when was that maybe like four or five years ago or so yeah something like that yeah so any morricone was sitting right next to john williams and john williams adored morricone and you can see john williams is more excited than anybody in the crowd when they announce any morricone's name and john williams was nominated too i think for one of the star wars movies but when they announced the oscar for any morricone you see john williams is just so thrilled and that that makes me smile genius recognizing genius yeah absolutely absolutely so he has an, an honorary oscar and a, a real oscar <laughs> <laughs> um i can't believe that ennio morricone was as close as he was to getting on the list of people without an oscar yeah i mean well, what a joke he'd be right next to hitchcock <laughs> yeah what a joke and i think kurosawa uh, yeah but i don't know yeah whatever. it's a it's a pretty impressive list <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a good list to be on actually um but yeah, so if you look at the music of, of Morricone, so some of his iconic films, right? We have Battle of Algiers, um, which I, I love too. It's a great, great film. It's a film about the Algerian battle from um, Algerian Battle of Independence from France. Um, fun fact, it was a banned film in France when it came out for like five years or so. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think 1966, I'm going to say, is when it came out. And tensions were very rough between France and its, at that point, disintegrating colonial empire, which included a lot of North Africa and Algeria. So, yeah, it was um, it was a, a banned film in France, which, I mean, the irony of banned films, banned books, it just makes them more popular. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, come on. When at Hogwarts, everybody wants to go to the forbidden section of the library. <laughs> Yeah, so some so some of his other iconic films, of course, we said uh, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly, which is the third part of the of the Man with No Name trilogy. It's also sometimes referenced as the Dollars trilogy. It was released as a few different titles in different countries, and of course, that just has the iconic tumbleweed soundtrack that we all <laughs> know and love, and again has become like the standard sound of the Wild West. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I would argue, you know, how Beethoven's iconic four notes that start his fifth symphony, dun, 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 the iconic five notes that are the <laughs> from the good, the bad, the ugly is like just as brilliant and iconic. And I, I actually do wonder, and maybe he addressed this in an interview somewhere, I wouldn't be surprised if he used Beethoven's fifth symphony as kind of inspiration for that, how you could build a whole giant work of music off of a four or five note motive. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Or motif. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So anyways, uh, yeah, um, that would not be surprising at all. It, it is, it is, um, 
you know, in terms of in terms of things that are just a few few notes, and you know, will be iconic for the, you know as long as we're around as a species. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah a short, right, it's a short right. list, but I, I would say that's probably on it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, he also did Once Upon a Time in America. He did Once Upon a Time in the West. He did The Untouchables. He did one of my favorite movies, Cinema Paradiso, which we've talked about on this show in the past. Um, you know, I actually wanted to to talk to you about the the score for Cinema Paradiso. Yeah, I just, yeah. I was just listening to it last night, and yeah, um, it was kind of reminding me of of the the score that Nino Rota wrote for The Godfather. Um, huh. You know, you're kind of the resident expert in both of those movies, between the two of us, at least. Um, do Do you see any similarities there? Yeah, they both sound Italian. Ex- yeah, right. Yeah. Even the parts that aren't cliche Italian. So forget any of the mandolin section, <laughs> right? Any of that stuff. Uh, just the the way the melodies are, they al- they're almost very Verdi esque or Rossini feeling. Uh, can't quite put my finger on it, but there's definitely an, an, an Italian. Um, zest to to both of those scores. Yeah, and you know this is a very minor similarity, but they're both very short scores. Sure, sure. They're, so the, the score for both of them is like thirty something. It's like thirty minutes and some change. Yeah, and that's one of the one of, one of I think the hallmarks for Morricone. I think any great film composer is, and especially Morricone though was, he was wary of using too much music. As part of his compositional strategy, he would usually compose his music after reading the script. He wouldn't even look at a first cut of the film. He would look at just the script and compose most of the music they'd use for the film of that. Of course, they would make adjustments later to make it fit. Maybe he'd have to cut the section, compose a bit more for this part of the the movie. But by and large, the bulk of the music he'd write just after reading the script. Interesting. So, so are, are a lot of his soundtracks pretty short? I think so. I mean, um, like what I love about his score for The Good, The Bad, The Ugly and a lot of his iconic westerns and even Cinema Paradiso, which for those who don't know, it's a lovely film that takes place in Sicily and it's about kind of the love of movies in general and uh, follows the journey of a small boy growing up there. And What's cool about Cinema Paradiso is it started as a very low-budget film um, it was not expected to be much. It was just an independent Italian film that that the world just fell in love with, which I, I think you know even paints a more beautiful picture. What I really loved, and like yeah. what, to to your point about you know being wary of composing too much music, um, a, a problem with a lot of film music is a lot of the the sort of transitional scenes or scenes where the music is really playing a, a supportive role rather than an equal role um, yeah. tends to be pretty boring, you know, filler music. And when I was listening to Cinema Paradiso, I was sort of remembering where, like, certain scenes where, where, like, I was remembering the music accompanies. And, you know, there are parts of the soundtrack that are obviously more accompanying than not. And yet, um, 
you know, the, mu- the music is very, um, it's, it's very tight, for lack of a better word. It's all, you know, from the material mm. to the material. There's no, you know, the classic thing that you think of when you think of film music, just something's happening on the screen and then there's, you know, uh, some score that's just sort of puttering away in the background. There's, there's none of that. It's, it's a very, and, and again, this has, this has to, and to go with The Godfather as well, it's a very um, tightly packed score. There, there's, there's really no fat on it. And very intentional. Right, it's like yeah. you know, not not a note is wasted. Right, 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 and not a note outsage is welcome. As has been said before, Ennio Morricone, he did not usually. I mean, he did not write scores. It was almost an anti John Williams, or better put, John John Williams was an anti Morricone. <laughs> um, but he usually didn't use grand sweeping melodies in the operatic tradition of Williams or Korngold or Wagner or or. Uh, Max Steiner, any of those guys. Instead, he, I think Marconi just really, I mean, he, he could just kill you with a melody, right? He'd write the simplest, innocent melody that would develop and just take over the movie. Uh, a great example is the melody from the track Ecstasy of Gold from Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Uh, that's just a beautiful, simple melody that just grows and and in the, that whole scene, that that whole scene that that music runs <laughs> and takes control of, there's basically no dialogue. It's almost just a standoff between Clint Eastwood and <laughs> and, and company. Yeah, and it's one of the most powerful scenes in the history of film. And it's it's as you've kind of said in the past, it's a Morricone creation. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not the biggest fan of melodies on the planet, mm-hmm. you know? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not usually one to be to be a sucker for a pretty tune. Right, um, right. But, you know, there's some people that just bust through that wall. Tchaikovsky's one of them and Morricone's another. You know, he could just, he could write something that is truly a, a beautiful melody. And, and yeah. not just not just a pretty one, you know? Captivating, captivating, yeah, yeah, captivating melody that 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 just stays with you. There are lots of catchy melodies. There are lots of you know pretty tunes, but um, it's it's actually if you sit down and listen to what exactly is a melody, there aren't actually that many melodies that are truly um, and utterly captivating. And and to be able to churn them out like he did, that's not that's not an easy task. Yeah. So something I think is kind of cool with. Morricone is he helped define in a way what what um what a modern film score could be right so he was coming after the era of again like Korngold and Max Steiner and uh Miklos Rota Franz Voxman where Hollywood scores were very orchestral right um and and of course that was um adventurous for the time because before that Hollywood scores were basically just piano accompanying silent films so it was part of the evolution 
So coming after this, like this double down on on um, orchestral film music, Morricone, he was very adventurous, especially for his time, in the way he would use non-orchestral instruments in his scores. He would use human voice a lot. He would he would use um, you know like sound effects like the I get is it a whip or like a slapstick you know for the for the good, the bad, the ugly, and a lot of his Western scores. Yeah. So he, he would kind of use, and of course, he did write his orchestral things as well, but you know, he used saxophone a lot in his film scores too. So in this kind of, I think, foreshadow the era of the 60s and 70s where there's a bit of a pivot away from orchestral film music. There are a lot of films that that were making the foray into electronic film scores and more intimate um uh, instrumentations for movies and Morricone was the catalyst I believe for a lot of that yeah I, I could be wrong on this but did, did Morricone also pioneer the use of the Moog synthesizer in movies, oh he may have in movies um, it's you know it's like an early synthesizer uh, maybe you can put a picture of it in the show notes but it's it's like this giant um, you know brick of a robot machine whatever um, mm, mm. and it was it was just an early synthesizer and yeah um yeah, it ended up being used a lot in movies, but I, th- I think I could be wrong. I think Morricone um, sort of pioneered that too. That could very well be true. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, yeah, I mean, much of the modern landscape of what modern of what today's film music is kind of owes itself in part to Morricone and his inventions. To kind of expand on our conversation of how Morricone was truly a melodic composer and not in an in in a way of a compliment, not as you know he couldn't orchestrate or write big, you know orchestral scores because he could if he wanted to, and he certainly did. But it was his melodies that would really, really take over, or as I said earlier, take control of a scene. He was very insistent that he never composed at the piano. He would always compose at his desk with just manuscript paper and a pencil. Hmm. That just that strikes me as uh, as. It, it kind of goes to 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 not really wasting any notes like it, it's it's it may be it may be that when you're composing at the piano it's, it's actually easier to come up with more music um, I wonder I wonder if if the sort of uh, you know at the desk with a pencil not not at a piano I wonder if that approach actually helped him keep the music that he actually wrote down to to a, a more you know minimal amount you know, I, I yeah. know I know authors do similar things with um, not using a word processor when they're writing because it's too mm, easy to be right. vomitous with your writing when you're doing that. Which you know, sure, sure. People like Nabokov, they would actually just sit down with a pencil and an index card. So it's mm. like, okay, now I have to think in terms of index cards to be mm. as minimal as possible. Heck, even J.K. Rowling, right, wrote all the Harry Potter books by hand. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I mean, Morricone's scores are very primal and physical in a way, right? There's definitely, uh, they're very human and you almost feel like you could touch it, right? And it's not, it's not very much a soundtrack. It's very much a part of the film tape, it even feels like. Yeah. I mean, not to belabor the comparison, but going back to, to Cinema Paradiso and The Godfather, um, mm-hmm. That also seems that, that that's you hit it exactly on the head there. Um, 
it really feels like this this piece of music that is that is uh, completely um, like touchable. That that's from that's from the movie, and I, I get the same feeling with the Godfather score that I don't really with a lot of music, um, mm-hmm. let alone scores. Um, it yeah. it's it's really uh, I guess another way another way to put it, it would be that it's really evocative. Um, yeah, like I can really picture. The, I can really see the movie in my head when I'm listening to the to just the soundtrack. Yeah, um, right. And it's the same way with The Godfather. And it's, that's, that's rarer than you would think, at least for me. A lot of times when I'm hearing yeah. music, I'm just hearing the music. And obviously I can sort of tell you where this went or that, but the sort of evocation of, of the feeling of watching Cinema Paradiso rather than just um, the sort of imagery of the scene. It's like you're almost watching the whole movie when you're just listening to the soundtrack. Um, right, maybe right. because the like soundtrack makes the movie so much. That could very well be it. I wonder. So Nino Rota, who wrote score for The Godfather, I wonder how much him and Ennio Morricone hung out. Hmm, that's a good question. I wouldn't be surprised if it was quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I feel like unlike a lot of other nationalities, like German, French, English, American, Italian artists really hung out with each other. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean. From the Renaissance folks to to uh, you know Claudio Abbado and Luigi Nono and Michael Pellini, yeah. yeah, yeah. I I bet Italian film composers were all part of the same clique and you know <laughs> hosted each other over for parties and things. Yeah, well, actually, wasn't Morricone part of a group of of avant-garde Italian composers? Now that you say it, yeah, probably. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sure him and Luigi Nono were, were buddies. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was called, it was like Il Grupo something, I don't know. But it was like, <laughs> it was like, it was a, an avant-garde improvisatory. Um, Communist sort of. <laughs> <laughs> they gave like workers concerts yeah, yeah. <laughs> at factories. <laughs> yeah, like that kind of thing. Um, so I, I, do, I do know in his, in his younger years, he was definitely part of some avant-garde uh, group, but I, I can't remember what it is now. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we will be hearing about it. But yeah, with Ennio Morricone as well, I think the person is hard to separate from the music in a cool way. Like he was, from what I have heard, just a fascinating human in the way he lived and things. Like he wore, he lived a very very simple life in his apartment in Rome. He woke up at 4:30 every morning um, wow. to compose or just to walk around or things. <laughs> Also, everyone in the film industry simply had so much respect for him. Um, Clint Eastwood learned Italian just so he could work with Ennio Morricone. <laughs> no way. Yeah, and Clint Eastwood still speaks Italian very well. He's interviewed on Italian news channels and things, yeah. Wow. You know, respect. I, I, you know, I wouldn't have guessed in a million years that Clint Eastwood was capable of speaking anything but American. Clint Eastwood's a fascinating guy. He, and I think he became more fascinating just from his work in you know, spaghetti westerns and De Palma stuff and huh. uh, all that. But, uh, I mean, you know, he was mayor of Monterey, California. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is it with you guys over there between the governor and Clint Eastwood? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. Sorry, no, no. He was mayor of Carmel. Carmel, the town okay. right next to Monterey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Still. Yeah, he was mayor of Carmel. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he, he lived in the Bay Area for a bit. He lived up in the Oakland Hills for for a while and things and uh there's a hilarious interview of tom hanks on the graham norton show in england and tom hanks is answering the question that is that was asked something like what is it like to work with clint eastwood and it's hilarious because tom hanks does a perfect clint eastwood impression oh really oh man i gotta, <laughs> yeah. I gotta check that out. it's hilarious it's so funny <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I mean, Clint Eastwood's movies too. Um, and this is the same word I would use to describe a lot of Ennio Morricone's films that I did the score for. They feel very alive, which in a way I think is one of the you know greatest compliments you can give a director or a filmmaker. Is, you know, it really feels alive. It's a work of art that really kind of lives and breathes. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, it's it's funny. Yeah. When um when uh yeah when. Ennio Marconi, I think when he accepted his honorary Oscar, Clint Eastwood was up there as his translator. <laughs> oh, wait, did Ennio Marconi not speak um, great English? No, no, I don't think he ever gave an interview in English. I think he, he could probably get by, but he always said he was very embarrassed by his English, so he would always speak Italian. Interesting, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, but again, like, he lived a simple life. I think he lived in, like, his same apartment in Rome for decades upon decades, and... and um, I really respect that. That's you don't you really don't see too many people who just, you know, live for, you know, not just their work, but just live for living's sake, and you know they they love their work and they love their life, and they don't need anything you know glitzy or famous or fancy. Um, I, I really respect yeah. that. And everyone would say he was a true gentleman. Like he'd always dress very nicely, even for a run a run of the mill first demo tape recording session. You know he would. He would always dress the part, and he would. Um, uh, there's stories too of him when he'd be in New York or something for, for a, for a recording session. He would stop by NYU Film School and answer questions well into the night after giving like a quick guest lecture or something. Yeah, he would. He would stay in, in the lecture hall until the very last question was answered at 2 a.m. <laughs> and I'm surprised we made it this far without me saying my favorite thing about Ennio Morricone. He was a trumpet player. Was he really? Yeah, he studied trumpet at one of the big conservatories in Italy. He was he was a very good trumpet player. Ah. Yeah. Your boy. All right. I didn't know that. All right. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. There's videos of him playing trumpet, or at least pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you know any of his classical compositions that you that you do like that you want to point, point the audience to? I actually towards? don't know his classical works too well. Do you, you know them by any chance? I, I know only one. I believe it's called "If This Be a Man," hmm. um, and it's like scored for soprano, violin, and strings, or maybe soprano, violin, and piano. Yeah, it's a um, very Marconi score. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like setup. Yeah, it's a recitation of the text of "If This Be a Man," which is a book by Primo Levi, um, the great Italian um, chemist, writer, and Holocaust survivor. Hmm. Um, it's a, it's, if This Be a Man is his memoir of uh, his arrest, his arrest um, as a member of the Italian anti-fascist party, like his subsequent um, oh, time in, in Auschwitz and, and yeah. the liberation. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting, very interesting piece, uh, very intense. <laughs> And it also can't you know, be ignored how many tributes there have been over the past several days by Yo-Yo Ma, who, who just uploaded something to Twitter a few days ago. And, I mean, composers, instrumentalists, fans, you know, uh, uh, all posting stuff about Ennio Morricone playing his music and stuff. It's, 
It's really fantastic. Um, he was deeply and widely loved. For good reason. Well, if, if, um, if, if I may mention here um, another fact about Morricone that, that I really like is that he was extremely into playing chess, hmm. um, which, you know, you'd be surprised. There, there are actually a fair amount of musicians and composers um, who are really into chess. Um, uh, Jean-Philippe Rameau was one. I believe Prokofiev was really into yeah. playing chess. And, um, yeah. And so was John Cage. Um, so was Clifford Brown, jazz trumpet legend. Really? Um, yeah. So is Manny Loriano, principal trumpet of the Minnesota Orchestra. Nice. He's a very avid chess player, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I didn't know that Manny was, was really into chess. Maybe, yeah, maybe is, I'll yeah. hit him up on Twitter and um, kind of try to get a chess game going with him. Yeah, um, Joey, my teacher at IU, uh, Joey Tartell, really, I mean, he had a big chess set up in his, in his studio. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll link to it in the show notes, but there's a wonderful interview on the Paris Review about Ennio Morricone and his love of chess. And, and he also talks about how chess notation is like a score in, in music as well, where, you know, the, it's like a coordinate where you get um, the, the horizontal and the vertical axes, like D4 mm-hmm. um, points you to a, a square on the, on the, on the board. And in a similar way, you know, as you're looking through a, a score, there's, there's horizontal ways of reading music and there's vertical ways of reading music. So, you know, someone like Bach is a very vertical composer in that, um, you know, there are lots of things happening at the same time. So if you think about the way that a musical score is actually structured, there, there are lines on top of lines that are happening. And you think of it more as, uh, as like a pillared structure with things piling up on top of each other. Where someone yeah. like Morricone actually is, I would say, a more horizontal composer where it's more melodic and there's one line that, that you actually follow through to its, to its conclusion, you know? Um, That's really... Okay, and so... If you, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, so I just think it's this interesting thing where, where you know, in chess and music and for that matter in maths, where, which we can maybe get to in a little bit, um, there's, you know, you get the feeling that... that Everyone is, is sort of talking about the same thing, but they're using a different language. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, it's funny. I never thought about music that way in terms of axes, the way we notate music in Western music notation, where the horizontal axis is time and the vertical axis is pitch. Exactly. Yeah, I actually never, I mean, I never really thought of it that way, but that's, huh. Yeah. That's, that's really curious. Yeah, that's and that's that's why you know um, um, Janos Starker, the the great Hungarian cellist who taught at Indiana University, mm-hmm. um, he would talk about the diagonal approach to making music, where you know wow. it, it's um, he would he was actually sometimes I believe an advocate against mem- against memorizing music and, or not memorizing it but playing music from memory without music in front of you without sheet music in really? front of you, because um, everyone has a natural tendency like. 
people tend to be either horizontal players or vertical players. And if you don't have the music in front of you to keep you honest, you tend to sort of exaggerate your natural tendencies. So he would always say, you know, look at the music when you're playing because um, it keeps you honest and then you can play perfectly down the diagonal, you know. You're not caught up in playing vertically or you're not caught up in playing horizontally. It's funny. Um, I mean, legendary cello professor. I mean, his students have gone on to conquer the world of cello. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he passed away a few years ago, right? Yeah, um, think, maybe uh, 2015 or 16. Yeah, well, we were both still at IU when he was professor there, mm-hmm. Jonas Starker. Um, and it was funny. I mean, of course, there was no smoking allowed indoors on campus. But boy, when you walked... <laughs> when you walked by his office, <laughs> you felt like you got lung cancer right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. But that that sort of um, that X Y axis thing of music um, that like that that really reminds me of um, of Leonard Euler, the the 18th century mathematician. He, he mm-hmm. he's he's one of the most important mathematicians and thinkers ever. Yeah. Um, and um, he was also a music theorist. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and he came up with this this little appreciated thing called the called the um, the speculum musicum, and it was basically a, a graph. It was like a, a graph or a lattice of of pitch relations, and it was really not appreciated in his time because um, he said something like, "It was too it was too musical for mathematicians, and it was too mathematical for musicians." Yeah, but it was the same. I mean, his, like he put that work down, and then it received very little attention. But um, it, it has found it has found like a revitalization in, in sort of modern times with with some um, neo Riemannian like music theorists. Um, they came up with like a lattice called like the Tonnets. Like we don't need to get into this. If you want, we can put links in the show notes so that people can can follow through it and read themselves because it's completely fascinating, especially if you're into mathematics. But okay. Um, I just think it's interesting that there's this long tradition going back to Euler and probably before. I mean, I know Path- Pythagoras was into music theory as well. Yeah, he was arguably the first music theorist. And yeah. He, um, I mean, there's a region of our musical modes that became the foundation of musical scales, but modes are what we use in jazz a lot. It's a, for lack of a better definition, it's a kind of scale. It was scales that existed before major and minor. And there's a reason they all have very Greek names, like Phrygian, Dorian, Mixolydian, Locrian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I just find this 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 relationship between these things, I find it completely fascinating and, um, you know, a- endlessly worth exploring. And like I said, I, I do get the, the feeling that, um, you know, we sometimes talk about Bach being close to the source code, and I get the feeling that, um, there's something there that is like a natural phenomenon, and we're all sort of talking about the same thing, you know, mm. musicians and mathematicians and physicists. Um, we're all kind of talking about the same thing, which is why you get these sort of conglomerates. Like I mentioned before, that that um, there's this weird confluence between theoretical physics, uh, musicians, and surfing. Yeah, uh, yeah. There are a lot of uh, physicists who love surfing, and there are a lot of musicians who love surfing. And chess is another one of those things where you get, you know, musicians, mathematicians, um, composers, and, you know, there's just this cluster of people who just, you know, they love playing chess and they, they study it and they're really, you know, brilliant at it. Um, so, it, like, the fact that all of these things are just sort of different versions of, of, of abstractions that take place, I think, in probably the same part of your brain. Um, Interesting. It makes me wonder, like, is there is there something there that's, that's like a natural phenomenon that's, um, you know, 
outside of our grasp as, as it is, but we're all trying to sort of describe the same thing. We're just going about it in, in different ways. To go back to the vertical horizontal thing, I mean, you know, Morricone, and I think I would say a lot of the, the Italian tradition is a horizontal tradition. Whereas, whereas <laughs> sure, sure. Bach and, and the, the German tradition is, is a very um, uh, vertical tradition. That's, uh, yeah, if you look at it, even a lot of the composers like Brahms or Beethoven, it's very vertical, totally, right? It's totally, very, yeah. And even yeah, if you get you, into modern people like Schoenberg, you know, the second Viennese school, that, that is, it's, it's vertical music. Through and through. It's very, yeah, you wouldn't ever sing it. Yeah, right? yeah. You, can't, you can't sing it. Yeah. <laughs> Some people try. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But yeah, when you think of the the melodies of the Italians, right? When you think of all the great classical music melodies, you think of the Italian composers for you know, yeah. things from... Totally. Yeah. Rossini and Verdi. And yeah, oh, I never really quite made that connection. Hmm. Another thing that is part of the Italian tradition, I would say, is... Um, is a very instrumental approach. Like if you look at um, okay. if you look at Vivaldi, yeah. as opposed to Bach, right? Um, of course, you know, like Bach is very varied, and he has some very Italian moments in his pieces. But in general, um, there, there's a sort of Italian flair, and um, an, an Italian flair for using the instrument. Uh, to the best capability of that instrument, like it, it seems to me that there that there is this tr- Italian tradition of of actually writing in a way that suits the instrument in a way that someone like Bach never did. You know, mm. one of the reasons why Bach is so technically horrendous to play is that he just wrote the music that was in his head. The instrument be damned. Yeah. So you right, have to contend right. with all the problems that that come with that. But when you know you play some Italian music, and even when you play. When you play, you know, Bach's music that is Italianate, or even when you play Mozart's music that's that's very Italian, um, like even in his flute concertos, he has two flute uh, flute, flute concertos, one in G major yeah, and one yep. in D major, and the one in G major is much harder to play because it's a very Germanic concerto, whereas the mm-hmm. D major, especially the first movement, um, it's a very Italian concerto, and that one just rolls off the flute perfectly well. Um, interesting, interesting. So there's something about the the Italian tradition that is that is tied to the instrument, and they really use the instrument well. And that's that's um, it's easier said than done. And I think Morricone does that as well. Like we were talking about before, you know, his scores, he uses so many different instruments, and yet uh, it's um, it's a perfect match. Like you know, right? Like like his electric guitar melodies in westerns, right? Yeah, uh, no, that's fascinating. Yeah, when you say it like that, it makes perfect sense because I can just think of countless examples when you think of the brass music of Gabrielli is very Italian, unlike the brass music of Bruckner, you know, very vertical. Right, right.
any other any other recommendations generally um, for the for the people who are listening out there, um, you know, who want to get into Morricone? And like you said at the beginning, if you just Google him, the sheer amount of work that he has is um, insane, and you can hit a brick wall right then and there. So right. you know, just to use it as a springboard, um, to to use this podcast as a springboard for anyone listening, do you, do you have any suggestions of you know where to go, dip your toe in the water in the in the yeah? Deep I mean. I do think the two films we've been talking about back and forth are two great places to start if you want to you know, expose yourself to a bit more of the music of Ennio Morricone. And they're both very different films and very different musical styles of his. So first is The Good, The Bad, The Ugly uh, came out in 1966, and that's the Western of, the Western of all Westerns. <laughs> um, that, that, that just you know, transformed you know, Hollywood and established the whole genre. Um, and then, of course, uh, Cinema Paradiso, which came out in 1990. De- depends when you count it. I think it came out in the U.S. in 1990. It may have come out in the late 80s in Italy. Hmm. But uh, that's another brilliant film, uh, brilliant music, and very different from some of Marconi's other scores. So, and I think both are streaming right now. I, I know good, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly is on Netflix. Cinema Paradiso was on HBO for a bit, and I've seen that one pop up on Amazon Prime and Netflix and stuff too. So, yeah, I wholeheartedly endorse both of them. Yeah, go check those out, and and go listen to um, "If This Be a Man." Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll find a link and put it in the show notes, um, and maybe I'll Absolutely. put a link in for the for the book too because um, that's also a, a very interesting um, thing. It, really, anything by Primo Levi is is totally mm. worth checking out. But yeah, totally. I mean, no, they're Italian. No, Italian. <laughs> yeah. He's an Italian Jew like yourself, so. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, yeah. Now, um, I guess, you know, all we can kind of say is thank you for the music. Ciao, maestro. Ciao.